13, verses 31 through 35 says, As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer, and as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you cannot come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You may be seated. Hi, my name is Cindy. My name is Mark. Both of us are part of Grief Share, which meets on Monday nights. I'm a diehard Steelers fan. And I'm a diehard Browns fan. And, and because, because we follow Jesus, Jesus even we are called to love, love one another. Oh, I'm grateful for uh, Cindy and Mark for participating in what was supposed to be an illustration, but would you believe that Mark had the audacity of wearing his Steelers jersey today in worship? If you see him, well, wait a second. Just so you guys know where your pastor stands on all of this, we're ready to go. Yeah, today is the 134th meeting between the rivals of the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And over the years, it's been uh, back and forth. And well, recently, it's, you know, it's been a lot of back, and for me at least. And I have to say, there was a point in time in my life where I really tried hard not to be emotionally attached. Uh, and it's for some reason, I just cannot shake it. And my wife, Amanda, still just has the hardest time explaining why to our son, why I'm so sad on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> but there's just something about being attached to the team that I love. Maybe it was because my grandfather passed that down to my father. My father passed that down to me. There's just some sort of attachment that I have with this team for better and for a lot of, of worse. <laughs> we get loyal to our teams. There's this way about us as human beings that we find ourselves attaching to a, a team or a group or a faction or a political party. We find ourselves being loyal to this group or, or that group or the other thing and find ourselves then getting a little tribal about it, getting a little um, attached to the teams that, that we feel that we are a part of. And all of that is sort of well and good within itself, but, but when we begin to create that distance when we begin to set our sides and say, this is the group that I belong to, a lot of times unintentionally, we also then create a distance from the people that are maybe the rivals, maybe the opponents, maybe the people that are on the other side of the aisle. And sometimes, and a lot of times, maybe, we find ourselves demonizing the other side. Have you ever been to a Browns game? Let me just say, it's not exactly a family event. <laughs> You're going to hear words that you wish you didn't hear. Attitudes that make you just question why. I mean, really, why? Is this what you are about? We find ourselves separating, seeing uh, ourselves oppositional to, to the people that are on the other side. And what gets really confusing about this is because a lot of those same people that we find ourselves demonizing on the other side, we actually find commonalities with in other subjects. And, and depending on what subject may come up at, at a dinner table, you could find yourself really aligned with someone, really glad that you had them over. But then 
that one topic comes up. Well, now you're not so sure about this other person. Boy, you felt really connected with them. You found yourself trusting this other, but now, well, now you're, you know, you're not so sure. You're not so sure about this other one now that you know where they stand on this particular topic. We find ourselves teaming up, and it even happens in the church. These are some statistics from the Barna Group that does a lot of research, particularly on Christianity, but other factors that affect the Christian faith that we talk about. And the title here is that opposites don't attract, that still as Christians, we find congregations where there are other people just like us. We team up. And it's not just about claiming the name Christian. It's not just about saying that we believe in Jesus. There are all kinds of qualifiers, and sometimes our list is very long of qualifications that we are looking for. People that are going to say and act and believe just the same way I do so that I can feel like I am a part of the team. And while there might be all these other voices of division saying, no, you need to belong to this group, no, you need to belong to that group, sometimes that leaks itself into the church. When I was a seminary student, I was stationed at a, a small country church outside of Ashland, Ohio, and it was this little country church, so in the worship, the course of worship, we'd have open, uh, open time for, to list prayer requests or praises. And I had this really insufferable Pittsburgh Steelers fan in the congregation that wanted me to lift up a prayer for the Steelers. And I never did. But I couldn't decide, am I saying no because it's really an inappropriate prayer, or do I just not really want to pray for the Pittsburgh Steelers? <laughs> we find ourselves teaming up, seeing the other as opposition. But when we get into church, that can get really confusing because while we claim the name Christian and find ourselves connected in Christ, sometimes we realize, oh, wait, but, but they're that kind of Christian. How do I deal with that? How do I navigate that? This dynamic uh, came even to the early church when Jesus had just got the church started and they were going in the first and second centuries and they could not help but to allow the divisions of the world, the mindsets of the world to leak into the church. And there was a great deal of fact, what we call factual, uh, factionalism, which is just people breaking up into different sections and, and following certain teachers and gurus and megachurch pastors and televangelists and, and all of that. And they'd say, well, I belong to this guy and I belong to, to that guy. And, and Paul, writing, um, in, in, writing to, the, to the Corinthian church, he, he needed to address this. Here's what he says to the church in Corinth, he says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. My brothers and sisters, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Sometimes, a lot of times, we find that the divisions or the divisional voices of this world have even leaked into the church. And so over the next five weeks, Pastor Steve and I are going to be looking at five specific scriptures that use one singular phrase, and the phrase is one another. There are 49 verses in the New Testament that use that phrase one another. We're going to choose five of them. And we're going to flesh them out and talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to be one and united in the way that Jesus intends for us. And here's a little um, spoiler alert. Everything that we say probably is not going to be new to you. It's not going to be incredibly earth-shattering. It's not going to be uh, 
profound information that you've never heard before. But the power of these messages depends on what you do during the week. How you let these simple and yet powerful messages sink into your heart and into your life and change you and evoke you to activity that maybe you hadn't done otherwise or maybe things that you would not do normally on your own. So we're going to start with the book of John. Now, John is the fourth uh, gospel writer, and all four gospels, if you read through all four of them, you'll notice have their sort of different flavors or a different tone about them. They're all kind of unique in their own way. And the reason is because they were evangelists. The purpose for them writing and telling the story of Jesus was because they had a, 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 an audience in their mind and they were writing it in order that people would hear the story and that they would believe. And so John is particularly concerned about this idea of family. There might have been a little bit of the fighting going on in his context. And so he use a lot, uses a lot of kinship language. That, there, that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, adopted into the fold of faith, are now brothers and sisters. We are now a part of the family of God. We are all children of the living God in Jesus Christ. And he drives that point home in a variety of, of, of different ways. And so in the context of this kinship mentality and this kinship message, he simply he, 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 uh, allows, he, he emphasizes Jesus' words in, in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, I give to you a new commandment that you love one another. I give to you a new commandment that you love one another. Now, as brothers and sisters, you would think that this should go without saying. But all of you parents know better, don't you? <laughs> if, if your children just simply by being children of the same parent would all get along, boy, we would... We, would have, we wouldn't have a lot of the problems in our world that we, would, that we have today. And yet there is this reminder that just calling yourselves Christians, that just claiming the name of Christian, that just belonging to the church is not enough. No, you need to live into it as well. And so children of God, little children, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. You see, the, the kinship that we share as brothers and sisters of the faith goes so far beyond claiming the name Christian. It goes so far beyond attending the same church. What Jesus is saying is, no, you need to back it up with action. You need to live into what it means to be sisters and brothers. Jesus even uh, remarks this, we read about in Matthew chapter 12. There was uh, a, a sort of a, a, a stirring in the crowd as Jesus was talking. It says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you, which would indicate that they're expecting Jesus to stop whatever he's doing and and attend to his mother and brothers. But he doesn't do that. He says, but to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a hard saying of Jesus. But what he's saying is, if you want to call yourself Christian, if you want to claim to be a part of the family of God, it's about how you live into that name. It's about what you do as a result of claiming the name of Jesus to follow the will of God. You see, our kinship goes so far beyond just claiming the name Christian. 
uh, A.W. Tozer, a great theologian and writer, he says, he says this, 100 religious persons knit into unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. Always. Life. Always. And so Jesus goes on to clarify what he's talking about. This is a new commandment. I, I give to you that you must love one another. And then he says, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. One of the things that we read about in the Gospels, and one of the, the methods that the Gospel writers do is that they carefully place things in such a way to, to send a message of significance. Here's what I mean by this. This particular section in John chapter 13, that a new commandment that we should love one another, is sandwiched in between two particular realities that is noted in, in that very same chapter. If we look at John chapter 13 in verse 1, the narrator tells us what's on Jesus' mind, that he knows that his hour is about to come. He knows that his time where he is going to sacrifice himself for God's love for the world, as John 3.16 says, he, has that, he knows this is about to happen. He has it on his mind. And so he's beginning, you get this feel in chapter 13 that there's some parting words. Jesus is sort of giving these parting words to his beloved, to his, to his disciples. And so on one hand, we have this sort of reality that God, that Jesus is, is about to give the fullest expression of what it means to love. On the other hand, however, this particular section is right in between not only uh, Judas's confrontation, Jesus confronts Judas about his betrayal, and then afterwards confronts Peter about what he's going to do. He's going to deny Jesus three times. And so what we have in this very section, not only is the, the height, the, the fullest example of what it means to love and what Jesus is about to do, but also an expression of the, of the human capacity to betray. To betray that same love. And so you get sort of the, the weight and the gravity of what Jesus is getting at in this. That Jesus is not just giving his disciples and us a new suggestion. He's giving us a new commandment. A new commandment, something that's vitally important, that if you're going to get anything right, you need to get this right. Because just as Jesus loves us, so we must love God one another. How in the world can we love like Jesus? How in the world can we live up to, to that example? Well, I talk about this a little bit when I'm counseling couples that are uh, preparing for their wedding day. Um, when I'm going through counseling, we, we spend some time talking about their vows, the, the vows that they're going to make for one another. The vows, they, they mean something. They're not just words they're throwing out in the course of a service. And as they're taking their vows, I remind the couple that they're, they're going to fail sometimes at these vows. They're never going to perfectly live into the vows that they share. I mean, think about the vows that you would share at your wedding day. I mean, you're not choosing weak language, Right? Say, we say, till death do us part, for better, for worse. They don't say, well, when I feel like it. Why? Why? Because when you are about to enter into a marriage covenant, you're saying, hey, this is important. This is worthwhile. And while I'm, there are times when I may not live into these specific vows, I'm evoking this strong language and these lofty goals and this high example because this marriage is worth it. And when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have lofty ex expectations, commands, 
uh, values, things that God is saying, I want you to align with me and my ways and my will. And sometimes we look at that and say, wow, I'm never going to measure up to that. But yet we still preach about it. We still proclaim it. Why? Because it means something. Because we can wake up each new day and say, you know what? I've messed up in the past, but this day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love like Jesus. I'm going to have compassion like Jesus. I'm going to have mercy like Jesus. I'm going to forgive like Jesus. And I don't know if I'm going to be perfect, but you know what? I'm going to aim for it. And so we set forth these examples to, to, to measure up because it's worth it. And the stakes are high. And as much as these uh, expectations or the call to, to live like Jesus or to love like Jesus are really high and sometimes overwhelming, I have to tell you, sometimes you may not see this, I see this in you guys. Sometimes I see you lingering after service and sharing with one another and listening to each other and embracing each other. Sometimes I see you organize meals for one another when someone maybe just had a baby or going through a difficult time. I see you tend to each other, band together around one another as you have need. I've seen people come and, and serve one another. I've seen people love and have compassion and check in with one another. I, I see that happening. This past uh, summer, I had a, a leader of one of our small group communities uh, contact me and ask if they could shut down for the summertime. And the leader told me that they're not really going to shut down. They just don't want to be an official group over the summer because what they felt God calling them to do was to put away their agenda and just love on another member of their group for the summer. This person had just lost their spouse and they had decided that they were going to make it their job, their task to rally around this person and love on them. I see it in you guys. And I know it's not really from you. I, I see God doing that in you, and I wonder if I can see it a little bit. I think I could see it a lot as we continue to pursue following Jesus in this way and hearing the call of Christ, not as a new suggestion, but as a new commandment. I wonder how much more we could see, how much more evidence of Christ's love in us as we love one another. I wonder how much more we could find and see. I know it happens all over, that I don't even get to see, but it happens. And that's exciting to me. What's really fun about this, this story, um, or this, this, this particular interaction uh, in John 13, is that in the first and second century, there were a lot of moral voices. There were a lot of people, teachers, rabbis, gurus, people that sort of had a following, people that influenced uh, on values and morality. There are a lot of different writings that we find in the ancient texts that people were speaking about morality. And there was a, a large number of them that's, they had this particular value, and it, it came from the way that family structures were established in the ancient world. But the value was sort of like this, that if you could see two children, two siblings loving each other, that that was direct proof that they actually loved their parents. And so in verse 35... This is, this is what we see. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Everyone will know who we belong to 
if we love one another. Um, I, I don't carry cash on me, so I went to Pastor Steve this morning. I know he was good for it. And uh, I'll give it back uh, eventually. Um, but when I was young, I learned something really cool about our money, our, our paper money, that if you hold it up to the light, you can see a lot more than what you could see if you were holding it down. And what, what's embedded in the paper there is something we all know is called a watermark. And I have no idea how it's done. That's not the point of all of this. But the reason why we print money with watermarks is so that bank tellers, when they receive money from an individual, they can tell which money's the real deal or not. That they can see which one is for real. Loving one another is the watermark of our Jesus following, of our Jesus discipleship. Loving one another is the watermark that proves to the world who we belong to and if we are the real deal or not. You know, it's really interesting too is that the watermark not only tells us what is real, but also tells us what is counterfeit. And that when we fail to love one another, it's more than just a bad day or a difficult season. Then people then begin to doubt who we belong to or if we are for real or not. Statistics show that still one of the primary factors that people say is the reason why they don't go to church or no longer go to church or don't believe or no longer believe is precisely by the, because of the way that they were treated by other Christians. I'm guessing that some of you at one point, maybe even recently, surprised yourself coming back to church because you were one of those people that had gone away from church for a while because of how you were treated. The gravity of this commandment is, is huge. In some ways, it's not fair because, you know, we're imperfect people and we're going to have bad days and bad seasons and, you know, and, and all of that. We're all hypocrites just on different subjects. And yet, at the same time, that does not water down the commandment part of it. But Jesus says, you gotta get this right. You, you, gotta, you gotta get love right. Like you can work out all your theological differences. You can work through your faith and your practice and how you're gonna organize yourselves as a congregation. You can work through all of that. But listen, you gotta get love right. You got to get this right. The world will know who you belong to. And if you are for real, by your love for one another. There's an a author, uh, Joni Erickson Tata, that says, believers are never told to become one. We already are one. We're just expected to act like it. <laughs> we already are one. We're just expected to act like it. I want to invite you to consider how we can allow God's love to fill our hearts and lives to such an extent that we cannot help but to love one another. What I'm not inviting you to is just to try harder and muster up your own kind of love. I mean, we, effort is, is important in this, but it's not our love. It's God's love that flows through us. I want to read for you same author, John, this time in 1 John, chapter 4, verses 16 and 19. He says this, God 
is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And then he says this in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. He first loved us. God expressed his love for us to the fullest extent in Jesus Christ. And on the same night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he sat down with his disciples to explain to them what that love will look like. They sat around for a Passover meal and he took bread and he broke it and he said, see this, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And afterwards, he passed a cup. And he said, this is the blood of a, of a new covenant. The blood that I will shed. And as often as you eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup, do this in remembrance of me. And as a Christian church, we practice communion time at the Lord's table so that we can remember, so that we can center ourselves, so we can be reminded that while we live in a world that tries to divide and section us off, we are one in Jesus Christ. We are one in Jesus Christ. As our ushers come forward, uh, they will pass out uh, matzah bread, wafers. And I'm going to invite you as it's passed to you to hold on to your bread until every single person here is served. And I, I want you to, to hold on to it and wait because in, as a symbol of our unity together, and you can look around, there's a lot of different people around here. Not, not to mean any bad about that, but we're all different, Right? And as we take communion together, I pray that you would be impacted by the unity that we share in Jesus Christ. Afterwards, our ushers will pass out the cups and we'll do the same with the cups. Hold on to your cup and we'll share in the cup together. As we center ourselves, as we remember, let us be filled with God's love to the fullest extent that we overflow onto one another and love. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, bless and sanctify this moment. Make it holy that as we abide in you, we have true fellowship and unity with one another. God, we are inundated with voices that would suggest that the people, that those of us in this room are the other. And here you are reminding us that we are children of the Most High God. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are a family. Bind us together in your love. And may your love be light and salt into this divided world. Be with us as we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazareth.
could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat together. The greatest love that anyone could ever know that overcame the cross and grave to find my soul until I see you face to face grace amazing takes me home just in you Thank you. 
the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, take and drink together. Would you stand with me? Holy God, as you pour out your love onto us, Let us love one another. Bind us together, Lord. Bounce back the voices and the efforts to divide us because we are one in you. Lord, sometimes we don't know how good we're doing when it comes to being your children. Teach us, guide us, show us the way. Let us know what it means to to live out your will for us as individuals and us corporately as a church. Our desire is to be faithful to you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your church. We're not perfect, but Lord, we strive to love you and to love others and to love one another. Lord, I'm so grateful to be on this faith journey with these other children of God that are with me. So Lord, help us to be salt and light into this world. Um, I pray over the witness and the power of the gospel into this world, that as others look on us, they would know of our love for one another. And so Lord, out of um, a compassion for the world that you died for, we Lift up those who do not know you, who do not know your love. We lift up those who are in sickness and pain, lost in depression. We lift up those reeling after unnecessary tragedy and loss. And specifically, we lift up those affected in Pittsburgh by this senseless shooting. Lord, we ask for your, for your love and for your peace. Lord, be with us as we go forward, knowing that it's not our task to love, but simply to allow your love to flow out of us. So we pray, God, that, that we would hold your love for us central to our hearts and to our lives and to our homes and to our world. We pray this, God, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
before you go, I just want to highlight a, a couple of things that are, I think are important for you to know. Some of you have already felt the tug on your heart that God's calling you uh, to be baptized. So I'd love to talk with you if that's something that you're interested in. You can note that on your Connect card as you turn it in and, uh, or come and talk to me and, and we can arrange a meeting and, and hear what God is doing in your life. We also uh, just came off the heels of our Faith Promise Week, and those cards, you can still bring in your Faith Promise commitment. Many of you have been praying about it, and you can drop those in the box. There are extra cards at guest services. Um, so far, we have over 161,000 committed for outreach and missions. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, it's just amazing your generosity and how God's working through all of this. Uh, so grateful for that. And as always, our offering uh, boxes are in the back. Uh, if you want to stuff your offering uh, in there, an envelope in there, uh, and your uh, Connect card as well, in there as well. But as you are going forward, go knowing that you are all a part of the family of God, united in Jesus Christ. May God's love flow through you onto one another and into the world. Go in his love and go in his peace. Amen.